0: <laughs> don't if you start me I'm not going to be able to stop <laughs> there was a moment when we were getting back in the car laughing about it I was like oh my god I'm going to go down the hole I'm never going to stop laughing about this I
1: I woke up on Monday and my sides were starting <laughs> mine to hurt, were like, oh god, mine were too mine were too I think the same thing that happened to Caroline happened to me I was laughing too hard that day <laughs> <laughs>
0: No, 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 we have to stop. We have to stop. Yeah, we, do. we do.
1: We're stopping.
0: Oh, oh God. <laughs> Pull it together. <laughs> but on the whole I've been to those poor unfortunate
1: souls. hello and welcome to poor unfortunate podcast I'm Connor Perkins
0: and I'm Caroline a Metty.
1: welcome back to any listeners who have been here before We love having you with us and a special welcome to any new listeners thank you very much for hit and play on this episode. And please remember to hit follow or subscribe wherever you're listening to the podcast. That way, all of our new episodes will download right to your device, including any bonus content that we might have coming your way. (laughs) And if you like this episode, make sure that you tap five stars and leave a review at the end so that other listeners can find the podcast easily, just like you. (sighs) All right, Caroline. Now that I did that, what's new? What's new with Disney? What's new with you? What's new with life?
0: Well, you know, on a personal level, we just came back from our annual Sleepy Hollow trip. We
1: did, and the lady at Bath and Body Works recognized us. Yeah, oh, what People, a trip.
0: part of our <laughs> so <lame. laughs> part of our Sleepy Hollow trip. And honestly, there's no way to, to describe it, so I'm just gonna say it. Part of our annual Sleepy Hollow trip. On the way up, we stop at a very specific Bath and Body Works and a very specific cheesecake factory. And it, that's just about everything you need to know about us. So that was part of it. It was wonderful. We made a lot of great also just Sleepy Hollow in general memes. Um
1: Sleepy Sleepy oh, Hollow. I can't. <laughs>
0: it'll break me. We have a lot of spooky season and Halloween content coming your way. So, I'm sure that there will be a little maybe a little reel or TikTok coming your way of all of the things that we did this trip because we we have a lot of experience and I think we've found a lot of really great spots. So, look out for that if you ever want to visit. We have some really great suggestions coming your way. Yeah. And we also finished off the weekend watching the Muppets Haunted Mansion and it was delightful. Oh,
1: it's so good. It's so good. Yeah, it was fantastic. Taraji P. Henson as Constance Hatchaway.
0: Oh, my gosh. Watch it for that reason alone.
1: Yeah. What a gift.
0: Also, in terms of Disney Parks news, we have some pricing for those. Okay, this is what's so silly to me. There isn't a name for this, which is why I sound so awkward when I try to explain to you what I'm talking about. The very, we'll call them high-end fancy attractions that will cost extra money to jump the line for in Disney – why don't they have a name for them? They're, they're Call them anything. I Fancy.
1: That's the name. Somebody had a great I idea. Yes. Fancy.
0: Yes. Somebody had the great idea of even calling them like Magic Carpet. I don't know. Something like that. But anyway, these are the attractions that you can pay extra to quickly access. We'll just put it that way. And here are some of the prices per person per ride. So Remy's Ratatouille Adventure would be $9 a person. Runaway Railway, $8. Rise of the Resistance. Fifteen m dollars per person
1: on top of your park ticket, uh, uh, which is already like ninety uh, to hundred dollars. Uh,
0: uh, Space Mountain seven dollars, Seven Dwarves Mine Train ten, Frozen Ever After nine, Flight of seven Passage. Seven Dwarves
1: Mine Train is ten. Yeah, Remy's Ratatouille Adventure is nine. Yeah. that makes no sense.
0: Yeah, Flight of Passage eleven and Expedition Everest seven. I can't get over the fifteen dollars. I can't.
1: Yeah. Well, also, wasn't today the official launch of Disney Genie?
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're right.
1: It's begun.
0: It's begun. The dance has begun. Oh, God.
1: (laughs) An end of an era and the launch of, I really feel like Amidala, like how (gasps) Liberty dies in the thunderous applause. Oh, my gosh. You're right. right Yes, yes,
0: yes. I do feel like that. I identify. Yeah. Yeah, with
1: all of these influencers being like, "Yeah, the genie system, mm-hmm. it's great today." I'm like,
0: "No,
1: y'all sold out.
0: No, y'all. You're supposed to defend us. Out.
1: They all sold out um. like Jar Jar, and we're over here, and we are being <laughs> yeah. Amidala yeah. and Senator Organa, and we're uh. just like, shit. No, we need to get out of here because Palpatine, Bob Chapek, is taken over.
0: <laughs> I feel like this is the most we've talked about Star Wars on this podcast." We'll have to change that. It soon. is. We should
1: fix that. Yeah. If yeah. you guys
0: just let us know if you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, more Star Wars, just let us let us know. Let us know. We would also like to hear from you. With Halloween coming, please, if you are dressing up in a Disney inspired costume, please send it our way. We did a nice little virtual uh, Halloween parade on the Instagram last year. It was fantastic. So please, as soon yeah. as you got them, send them our way. We're really excited yeah. to see those.
1: We'll do another little social media parade. That yeah, will be we fun. will
0: we will. Um we also heard about some more holiday season related offerings coming to Disney Plus. So we have Olaf Presents. That's not necessarily holiday, but you know, he's a snowman. Olaf Presents is coming, very excited for that. And we have Home Sweet Home Alone coming as well. Yeah. So getting some dribs and drabs of holiday, holiday stuff on Disney Plus. It's coming.
1: Yeah, and then also it looks like all the 2022 Releases for the Marvel movies have been delayed, mm-hmm. so we're gonna have to wait longer for some of those, which is frustrating. Yeah, but if it makes them better movies, uh, whatever. I mean, yeah, everything's been on hold forever. I don't. I know what is time anymore. It doesn't even. It doesn't matter. <sighs> doesn't matter. <sighs> the McDonald's toys are almost over. Oh. I don't know if we're on track to hit fifty anymore, <gasps> but I did get Lumiere today. Ooh! And Aaron got Hey Hey, so. <gasps>
0: All right, I think I'm going to order yeah. a happy meal tomorrow, so I'll keep you posted.
1: Yeah, we need to, mm. I still need, we need to find Gus so that we I
0: know, Gus. I know. Hey, we'll trade. If anybody out there has Gus Gus, let us know. We have some things to trade with. Yeah, let with. us know. Yeah, let us know.
1: All righty, so we're going to get started with the episode. We yep. are back to our rant and rave episode for the new rotation. And for this episode, we are going to be ranting and raving about Disney villain, Henchmen, or hench hench people, hench people, hench persons, whatever you will,
0: (laughs) minions. Um,
1: so I'm gonna be (laughs) I'm gonna be talking about a Disney villain henchman that sucks, and (laughs) Caroline is gonna be raving about a hench person, hench peoples that are the bees knees. So yeah, I'll go first because I have the rant. Yes, and we'll end on a high note. Love that. Okay, dokie. Okay. So here I go with my rant.
0: Oh, take it away.
1: So I am talking about Lawrence from The Princess mm. and the Frog. Mm. If you're asking yourself who the hell is Lawrence, I know <laughs> Lawrence is the manservant to Prince Naveen, who Doctor Facilier uses to try and get what he wants, aka ruling New Orleans and taking over the world, essentially. Mm. So a little bit of background information about The Princess and the Frog because that's how I roll. Yes. I'm not going to go too much into detail about background information because, A, this isn't a showdown, and B, I think we kind of already did that once already. We, Yeah, so,
0: we have, yeah, in our our uh, music episode. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, but just a quick refresher for you so that you you know the world of the play that we're in. <laughs> Princess and the Frog was released on December 11th, 2009, having its premiere in L.A., on November 25th, 2009. The directors were Ron Clements and John Musker. It's based on The Frog Prince by the brothers Grimm and E.D. Baker. The story is by Ron Clements, John Musker, Greg Erb, and Jason Oremlund. The producer is Peter Del Vecco, And it is starring, among others, Anika Noni Rose as Tiana, Bruno Campos as Prince Naveen, Keith David as Dr. Facilier, Michael Leon Woolley as Lewis, Jim Cummings as Ray, Jennifer Cody as Charlotte LaBeouf, Jennifer Lewis as Mama Odie, and Peter Bartlett himself as Lawrence. Hmm. So... I do want to take a moment to really quickly just talk about Peter Bartlett for a second. I love Peter this Bartlett. Man oh. Is freaking amazing. Yeah. I saw him in Cinderella twice on Broadway. He was part of the original Broadway production, starring you know Santino Fontana, Laura Osnes, and Victoria Clark. He played Sebastian, the the sort of steward character, mm-hmm. very similar to Lawrence. Actually, yeah. he was amazing. He also played like the Mater D in She Loves Me with Zachary <gasps> Levi. Right. Yeah, and oh, Laura Bonanti, so how? even more crossover of Disney yeah. people on Broadway. Like, love, love,
0: love.
1: He is so funny. Mm-hmm. He is just, he just makes the biggest, boldest choices, especially on stage. And honestly, I think that Lawrence does not do the man justice for how immensely talented he is. Mm-hmm. Because this character, as I said before, sucks. <laughs> and here's why. <laughs> So I can break down why Lawrence sucks into basically three categories. One, my man is ineffective. Two, he has an inconsistent want. And three, he's just not really funny. Like the joke of Lawrence is not funny to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'll start with his ineffectiveness because as you know, being me, like that's really important to me. Mm -hmm. So Lawrence is not really good at literally anything and what's worse is the fact that he doesn't appreciate the costs of his failures and shortcomings when they happen so taking a look at a couple of his roles that he has so one being a manservant uh, and being that sort of guardian figure for Naveen dude has absolutely no control over Mm -hmm. Naveen now Mm -hmm. part of this I can understand because Naveen is truly a wild child but at the same time If you have been working for this royal family for basically your entire life, and presumably for the prince, for his entire life at least, and you haven't really established any type of ground rules, rapport, or even mutual respect for one another, what the fuck are you doing in that job, dude? Like, the nurse with Juliet, she has a rapport. Like... Lady Cluck and Maid Marion, they have a rapport. Like, even if you're like, this person doesn't get me, at least they do on a a little bit of a level. And there is some love there for each other. Mm. If you haven't built that up, I'm sorry, but I just don't know what you've been doing with your life. Like, if that is the case, if it is the case that you don't have this mutual respect for each other, then just leave because it's clearly not worth it. If you're not being taken care of or compensated in a way that at the very least makes you feel satisfied enough not to sell out the prince to a rando street merchant for some cash, there truly is no point in sticking around. Like, one of the first chances he gets, he's like, take him, I don't care. (laughs) Why did you stick around then? Because you weren't getting enough from these royal people. Like, go find another job because that's better than this. But then also in being that manservant, being that guardian, for this trip to New Orleans, there clearly has to be some sort of schedule that needs to be attended to. And Lawrence's complete lack of control caused them to lose the day. Again, I get that Naveen does his own thing, but if you haven't figured out how to exercise a semblance of control over him at this point—that is literally your job. That's what you are being paid to do. So you shouldn't have that job anymore if you can't do it. Mm-hmm. You don't have anyone else to blame for why you're not being compensated at a higher rate for doing your job when you can't clearly do your job. Sorry, mm. ineffective.
0: Okay, yeah, yeah. You would hate that someone who makes you lose the day. Oh my god. That's yeah. Your nightmare.
1: No, don't don't make me lose the day. Mm. In another one of his roles, he does at one point have to be Naveen because he, you know, through different reasons, ends up having to resume that role on the behalf of, you know, Dr. Facilier so that he can live out his dream and Naveen can be a frog and everyone's happy who's a bad guy. Mm. Um, But in being Naveen, there is no attempt at the correct accent. Like, sure, Lottie (laughs) hasn't met the real Naveen and wouldn't know. But... If they've done any sort of research about Maldonia or met other Maldonians who would come through a port city like New Orleans, the lack of dialect would be jarring. Also, there's no attempt at employing any of Naveen's suaveness, charm, mannerisms. Lawrence tries so hard when in reality he could actually just sort of like sit back and say nothing and the sexy mystery around Naveen would do like 90% of the work (laughs) like I get that this is the comedy of it but like after living with Naveen for X number of years you'd think you might pick up on some mannerisms to help sell the con a bit more (laughs) At some point in the long game, you'll have to interact with people who know Naveen. And you're if you're establishing some new rules for behavior with Lottie that don't match what people know of the old Naveen, that's called a disaster down the line. And mm. you need to prevent that from happening and you're not doing that. And then one of the key points of being Naveen is to make sure that the real Naveen is kept safe and out of sight. And in the course of a few actual literal hours Lawrence loses Naveen he loosens the lid on a jar with an athletic frog inside with the brain of a human and thinks he won't escape no that's bad judgment and the worst part he doesn't even try to be a part of the solution this is the part that I Fucking hate when people cause a problem and then refuse to be part of the solution so he's not trying to fix that mistake he honestly doesn't even think that the mistake is that big of a deal when in reality it's probably the biggest deal possible not only so people don't learn the truth of what happened but so that you have that endless supply of blood to stay as Naveen stupid Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. absolutely stupid so across the line these sort of major things that Lawrence has to do as a proper henchman, or even as a proper like sub villain, he just doesn't he doesn't tick the boxes here. Yeah, 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 It's no. But also, he is ineffective at following simple instructions. So Doctor Facilier is constantly giving Lawrence very clear and very simple instructions. Don't lose the frog. Protect the talisman at all costs. Marry Lottie LaBeouf, ASAP. And Lawrence manages to fuck all of these up individually. He literally loses Naveen in the first few hours. He also loses him at the wedding ceremony when he's locked inside the box. And he loses Naveen when he's in the church after, you know, he's pulled away from the wedding cake ceremony and everything like that. And they're <laughs> in the church. He loses Naveen again, which allows Naveen to talk to Lottie and explain the entire situation to her. No, no, no. No, no, no. So he probably got the instruction to protect the talisman right when he received it. But then that same night, he's just sort of whirling it around dangerously to the point of reprimand from Dr. Facilier. And then after getting those explicit instructions from Dr. Facilier again that nothing can happen to the talisman, he does very little to protect it in his clothing for the Mardi Gras wedding. Like, why isn't that shit buried under layers of underclothes and all that stuff so that a frog can't get at it the first second he's hopping out of a little treasure chest? (laughs) I would have that shit on a full-ass chain until I am making it through the wedding ceremony at the very least. (laughs) But no, Naveen is easily able to grab that talisman and then a lightning bug. A lightning bug is able to carry it away without Lawrence chasing said lightning bug. (laughs) Uh. Dr. Facilier has to go after Ray because Lawrence is too oblivious and can't be trusted anymore. Jesus, God, (laughs) help us here. And then he needs to marry Lottie. Once he gets the talisman back from Naveen, he decides to go into the church and tell him off, As opposed to getting back on the cake and making it through literally the last line of the ceremony to make it (laughs) official. I mean, yeah, I have the frog in my hand, but I would just death grip that frog, climb up that damn cake, and get the deed done. That should be the priority. None of this taking a moment to compose myself bullshit. Mm. You were almost done. Idiot, no. <laughs> Idiot. So ineffective. That's his ineffectiveness in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. I have, I have no tolerance for this. Oh, God. this is ineffectiveness as a henchman. Ineffectiveness in just himself. It's just mm-hmm. riddled with it all over the place. Mm-hmm. Moving on to his inconsistent want. So not only does Lawrence's motivations feel too easily changeable and on an unstable foundation for himself but he doesn't really sufficiently align himself with the real villain of the story's goals. So let me elaborate a little bit on this. Lawrence's goals and desires are constantly shifting and changing throughout the movie, which ultimately makes him unreliable as a henchman, but also incredibly unreliable as a character. So in our introduction to Lawrence and Naveen, it doesn't seem that there is as much outright resentment for him as it is just frustration in the lifestyle of hard work with a neer do prince mm. and that Naveen does not really struggle in the way that he does. In fact, Lawrence is pretty protective of Naveen when he begins to interact with Dr. Facilier, sort of pointing out that he's a fraud, pulling information off the front page of the newspaper. But then once we're in the voodoo shop, he eagerly shakes Dr. Facilier's hand after seeing a card of him and Naveen trading places, selling him out to a person he was just trying to protect Naveen from. Mm. And then after Naveen's transformation during the song, Lawrence's face, he is horrified at what's happened. He sympathizes with Naveen enough to loosen the lid of the jar so he's got a little bit of air that leads to Naveen's escape. So he's flipped back from where he was with Dr. Facilier making the deal. But then after getting that tongue lashing from Facilier, he's right back to condemning Naveen to life as a frog to the point where he's the one who's drawing Naveen's blood with the talisman himself after the shadow demons recapture Naveen. Mm, So I'm just like, what what are we doing here? What's important to you? What's not? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he flips back and forth through the whole thing. So that isn't to say that you can't ever change what you want. It's far from it since that's kind of what our protagonists are doing in this, finding Hmm. out what they want, finding out what they need, changing things accordingly. But to constantly be shifting back and forth to the opposite ends of the spectrum is exhausting. And exactly what makes a bad henchman. I would rather have a henchman who is consistent with what they want and fucks up a lot Because we can work on their effectiveness, but inconsistency in chasing goals is not something that you can afford as a villain when looking for a henchman. And then a trait of a good henchman is really to be committed to the goals of the villain you're serving, adopting their aims as your own, especially when your own goals are rather weak, as Lawrence's are. Flotsam and Jetsam, Diablo, even Fidget and Pain and Panic, they do all of these well regardless of how effective they might be. I think Flotsam and Jetsam and Diablo are pretty effective. Mm -hmm. Pain and Panic and Fidget, they, you know, make some mistakes. But at least when they're doing things, they are doing it in service of the villain's goal because they've taken that on for themselves and they're sharing in it. Mm -hmm. And when you have henchmen who do this, it allows them to make choices themselves that either strengthen the overall plan or allows them to improvise effectively to accomplish the specific tasks that they have laid out. But Lawrence can't be trusted with Dr. Facilier's full plan because he is so much of a pushover that he could be a liability and therefore can't fully take on Facilier's plans for his own. But also on the other hand, because Lawrence lacks a lot of original thought and has to constantly be reminded of what he wants, prompted to do different things... It would be nearly impossible for Facilier to trust him to take any type of initiative or personalize the goal for himself without explicit instructions. He just requires way too much hand-holding. And as a result, the henchman in this movie is on his very own simple, meandering path that only sometimes is actually helpful to the villain's overall goal. And that just doesn't cut it as a henchman. That makes you a bad henchman. Hmm. And then my last section is, I don't think he's all that funny.
0: Yeah.
1: Sure, there are there are a couple things that happen that are funny. A lot of it really just has to do with Peter Bartlett's voice because his voice is kind voice of fun so and interesting to listen yeah. to. Mm-hmm. Like when he's like, how did I get mixed up in all this voodoo madness? Like, that, yeah, like, very that fun. Really like that's very funny. That Thank you. It's just funny. But the joke of Lawrence... Relies too much on pretty tired tropes that ultimately backfire here. Everything that's sort of meant to be funny about Lawrence is based on who he is rather than what he says or does, mm. which is cheap comedy. Yeah. So he really is assuming two roles in this. So the first is the funny fat man. Mm. The fat man trope is one of the most tried and true comedic bits throughout the history of show business. The softness of large bodies make them feel inherently non-threatening and a bit easier to produce comedy. They're already existing outside of the world of quote unquote normal. So it's easy to other them and so things that are not us are easier to be seen in a more extreme way that a story might be trying to frame them Mm. so we aren't fighting ourselves or fighting the feeling of looking at ourselves trying to be like poke fun at it it's easier for us to access that and so emphasizing these differences makes for cheap comedy because we say that's not supposed to look like that And we see it happen again and again with Lawrence, making fun out of something that isn't quote-unquote supposed to look a certain way. His difficulty to keep up with Naveen, carrying all the suitcases, and then his transformations that spend so much time jiggling and moving disproportionately fat parts of his body— are causing us just to laugh at the parts of Lawrence as a character. Not anything that he's actually doing Mm. to be funny. The Mm. fat is the funny. And it just isn't anymore. Mm -hmm. I I don't find that to be funny. And so with Lawrence, I sort of see him as LeFou 2.0. LeFou is another henchman that sort of drives me insane to the point where if I was cast as LeFou in a production of Beauty and the Beast, I would quit because I'm just like, I'm not interested in doing that anymore. Well, LeFou
0: is at least a little bit more entertaining than Lawrence's and memorable. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Lawrence is like LeFou 2.0, where we double down on all of the things that you probably hated about LeFou. hmm mm-hmm. Which sort of brings me to this other role that Lawrence assumes, which is the coward. And this actually plays right in with the fat man trope because it's always, quote-unquote, entertaining – To see a big man, or someone who is large and taking up space, experience fear. Damn. Their fear is just larger and plays right into the bigger, faster, funnier technique for comedy with hardly any effort. So we see this played out in every interaction with Dr. Facilier, where he gets bossed around. But it really all comes to a point at the end when Charlotte finally sees him, and she screams, and then he runs off screaming and crying. This shit is tired. It may seem like a small thing, but the more often that this plagues the stories that we consume, the more fat, large, plus-size people, etc., feel that they cannot fully experience these emotions because Mm. when they do, it's just for comedy. And that's not fair. Mm. It's not fair.
0: Damn, I'm glad you pointed that out.
1: So, for all of those reasons, Lawrence, to me, as a henchman, as a villainy sidekick kind of character, just... Fucking sucks. Yeah. And again, that has nothing to do with Peter Bartlett's performance. I think Peter Bartlett's performance as Lawrence is really wonderful. Yeah. In fact, but he is unfortunately giving a performance to a character that I think isn't really helpful to anything. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Either, even in the story or yeah, culturally yeah. and
0: he lives in a very strange yeah he lives in like the strange in-between zone because i wrote when you first started talking i was like wait he but he isn't really a villain henchman but then he is but it, but they yeah. don't they don't use to best effect the fact that he's supposed to take care of Naveen, and then is you know commits the ultimate betrayal that's actually a really interesting storyline and could be really milked and it wasn't. Yeah. It's really interesting.
1: He he Hmm. feels a bit like an afterthought and I think that's part of the reason is because he is inhabiting a very old space, if that makes sense. One that's reliant on a lot of like just standard, older techniques for storytelling and comedy Mm, and things like that. In a movie that is... In other ways, sort of actively pushing boundaries. Yeah, I agree. And when the animation world is consciously sort of moving away from that, so he just feels like a character from a different time he stuck does. in a movie <gasps> yes. that is yes. doing a whole lot of other things. And mm. it's part of the reason why I think he's so forgettable, Whereas I was trying to figure out who I was going to rant about, Lawrence came to me at the very last second because mm-hmm. I didn't even give him a thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then when I did, I was like, oh, yeah, the reason I didn't think of him is because I hate him. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. So that's my rant. That's everything I've got to say about
0: Lawrence. Mm. Yeah.
1: I don't want to waste any more time on this fucking man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love when you pick your, your characters to hate. It's so... <laughs> it's so funny to see who it ends up being, but that's a great. Yeah. No, I'm sold. I'm sold.
1: Yeah, I feel like that's not a hard sell on. A no, lot of no, people. It's not. I don't think there. Are, I don't think there are a lot well, of people yeah, who that are like. That but out. Lawrence is my favorite character. I miss that we don't see him Honestly, in the parks. If you're no, out there, y'all didn't even think. If about you're him.
0: out there and you love Lawrence, we definitely want to hear from you. So let us know.
1: Yeah, if you are a Lawrence stan, come at me. Change my mind.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so good. All right, you're up. Let's rave.
1: Yeah. Let's end this
0: on a high note. So my rave today is about a hench person who doesn't automatically come to mind when you think of, you know, villain sidekicks, villain minions, hench people. But she is through and through, and there's no arguing it. And that is also a character who is one of my favorite characters in Disney, favorite characters in the freaking universe. I'm so excited to talk about her today. My girl Meg, Megara from Hercules. Woo!
1: This is such a good choice. She
0: is the ultimate henchwoman. So, my whole point here is that Meg is not only a unique Disney heroine, which is its own thing altogether, a strong woman who is beautifully designed and just an all-around good time to watch in this film, but she is an effective but nuanced henchwoman who despite the fact that she turns her back on the villain she serves, could eat most other hench people for lunch. So this is part of like a this is just part of fangirl moment and part of critical exploration <laughs> of her effectiveness because I knew I'd be talking to Connor about this and so I did want to talk about effectiveness thank and you. she's got it.
1: Thank you, thank you. So,
0: <laughs> quick background information: uh, Hercules premiered on June thirteenth, nineteen ninety seven. Same directors, directed by Ron Clements and John Musker, based upon the Greek myths of Heracles. The screenplay is by Ron Clements, John Musker, Donald McEnery, Bob Shaw, Irene Mechie. We just love. Oh, my gosh. And then there were 12 people on the story team. So lots of hands. And it was produced by Alice Dewey, Ron Clements, and John Musker. Music by the one and only Alan Menken with lyrics by David Zappel voice talents, oh, this movie, <laughs> Tate Donovan as Hercules, Susan Egan as Meg, James Woods as Hades, Danny DeVito as Phil, and Lilius White, Cheryl Freeman, LaShawn's, Roz Ryan, and Vanessa Y. Thomas as the Muses, among many spectacular others. So I'm not going to summarize Hercules for you. If you're here, you know it, but where Meg belongs in the story. So Hercules, we know it and we love it. Greek god Hercules is stolen from Mount Olympus as a baby by the minions of Hades, god of the underworld, and nearly made mortal. But, as the muses say, he retains his godlike strength, and as he grows up, discovers his birthright as an original member of Mount Olympus. But this is not going to fly with Hades, who wants to free the trapped titans and take Mount Olympus, but the fates say that if Herc fights, Hades loses. Hades needs to finish Herc off properly, and his useless minions, Pain and Panic, have proven completely unable to do the job. That's where Meg comes in. Enslaved by Hades after selling her soul to him to save her lover's life, she is tasked with discovering Herc's weakness so he can be destroyed once and for all. So before we go into the effectiveness of Meg as a henchwoman, I just want to talk about, I want to take my fangirl moment and talk about how amazingly developed, designed, and executed. She is just as a character in general. Mm. So Meg's development just completely set her up for success. Meg is based upon the wife of Heracles in Greek mythology. In mythology, Megara is offered by her father Creon, king of Thebes, to Hercules slash Heracles to thank him for defending Thebes. The mythology of their relationship is dark as hell. Heracles is driven to madness by Hera. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Murders his and Megara's children and in some versions kills her too. Yep. Some cite Heracles completing his 12 labors as atonement for killing Megara and their family. Interestingly, Odysseus sees Megara in the underworld. We don't get much more info other than that. But I'm thinking this has to be the catalyst for Disney to decide to have their Meg work alongside Hades. Hades became the main villain of this story rather than Hera, who is the villain of the Greek myth. In the myth, Zeus has an affair with Alcmene and Hercules is born, sparking Hera's hatred and jealousy. Obviously, that would be a very tough sell for a family film. Mm -hmm. So, Musker and Clements. Wanted idealistic Hercules in their version to be caught between three more cynical main characters a sidekick, a villain, and a worldwise heroine, Meg. Meg is also inspired by the second wife of Heracles, Deianira. Her story involves the centaur Nessus, just like Meg's first appearance in the film. Heracles, in the myth, kills Nessus, the centaur, and Nessus convinces Deianira to take some of his blood to make this sort of love potion to ensure that Heracles will never be unfaithful to her. Well, he is. And Deianira unwittingly, sort of, poisons and kills him with the blood. Good for her. Yeah, yeah, good for her. <laughs> <laughs> so both of those wives of Heracles in the myths join together and make the Meg that we know pretty in a pretty cool way. Love it. So the early drafts of Hercules were very heavily inspired by screwball comedies of the 40s. And this inspiration definitely lingered the most in the development of Meg, who is inspired by actress Barbara Stanwyck. Look up a photo and you will see it immediately. Uh, She is kind of paired with the Jimmy Stewart inspiration that they've given to Hercules, as well as Lola from Damn Yankees, who, if you do not know, works for the devil, as well as Lois Lane of the Superman comics and films. In fact... Clements and Musker were drawn to the story of Hercules over other pitches they were offered at the time for The Odyssey, Don Quixote, and Around the World in 80 Days because they felt like Hercules would be an opportunity to make their own version of a superhero movie. So I just think that Meg arising from all of this development is pretty damn brilliant. Nothing in the source material suggests that this Uh, love interest of Hercules would have this much strength, sass, and wit. And there's really no hints at an association with Hades either. I am dying to know more about the details of her development because I think what she became took a lot of creativity and thinking outside of the box, especially when we consider the kinds of Disney heroines that we were being offered up until that point. She was something completely new. Mm -hmm. Then we've got Clearly. Obviously, a huge part of the success of Meg is the voice work of Susan Egan. Susan Egan is arguably, to me, the most iconic voicing of a Disney heroine. And Meg was the first heroine since Belle to be voiced and sung by the same actress. And on the topic of the Belle connection, I'm sure most of you know that Susan Egan was the original Belle in Beauty and the Beast on Broadway. She had been auditioning for Disney animated films for years, and the Hercules team initially refused to let her audition for Meg because they didn't think that she could portray Meg's cynicism and snark after coming from a role like Belle with much more sweetness and innocence.
1: Boy, were they wrong.
0: Audra McDonald and Donna Murphy also auditioned for the role. Can you even? I mean, they would have been so different, but oh my god. But Susan kept campaigning to get into that room. Once there... Alan Menken and musical director Michael Kassarin didn't look at her as she performed and instead looked down or studied a drawing of Meg because they were just like, for whatever reason, were like, she as herself is so distracting and un-Meg-like. And I couldn't disagree more, but okay.
1: Yeah, but also I'm sure Alan Menken especially, having worked with her so closely yeah, on, on Beauty Bell. And the Beast mm-hmm. as they were developing the musical, probably was like, oh, I have way too many things yeah. in my brain and I need to yeah. focus on the sound of your voice. Yeah. I, I don't blame him for that. All
0: right. Well, I think you'll love this too. Um, she sang Somewhere That's Green for her audition. Oh, bless Again, her. I die. <laughs> um, and she drew inspiration for Meg's voice from Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, and Lauren Bacall because she knew that Meg was already inspired by Barbara Stanwyck. She did her research. She didn't hear from Disney for six months, but then she finally went through a couple more rounds, won the role, and she performed as Belle on Broadway at the same time she was going into the studio to voice Meg. Jesus. Susan wanted it, she worked for it, and after that tenacity and level of care, there's no way she was not going to knock it out of the park, and she did.
1: No chance, no way.
0: No, no chance, no way. (laughs) Get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) So, Meg's original solo was titled, I Can't Believe My Heart. You can find it on YouTube, hear Susan sing it. It's a romantic ballad. The theme is sort of similar to I Won't Say I'm in Love, but it's way softer. Um, An excerpt of some of the lyrics. If life is worth a disappointment, I hadn't seen one reason yet until I met the boy who smiles for free. Upon this earth, there's no one like him. He sees the girl I long to be, making even me believe in me. Now I can't believe my heart. After it was recorded, Mencken decided that Meg just wasn't the ballad type. I couldn't agree more. I listened to it. It doesn't feel Meg to me at all. And honestly, she's an anti
1: heroine. She needs an anti love song. Exactly.
0: Mm. And I won't say I'm in love was born from that. This song is not only one of the best in the Disney canon, but it conveys the feelings of new love while still staying true to Meg's painful past and current cynicism. It totally fits her like a glove. It's a tall order now for new songs for Meg to possibly come up in the stage musical. Connor saw it when it was at the public. What did you think of her additional song? It's called Forget About It, I want to say.
1: Oh, I forgot about it. <laughs> oh well, the- <laughs> There you go.
0: Yeah. There you
1: go. I mean, just because you're you're I'm like, I'm sorry, but everyone's just waiting to hear I won't say I'm in love. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. You're just waiting for yeah. it. I yeah. mean, I thinking about it now, like, yeah, I, I vaguely remember it, but it's it's not I won't say I'm in love. Mm-hmm. Because there's a song like I Won't Say I'm in Love, just like in the in the Disney canon, there's just nothing like really like it. doesn't exist. No, it is there's so, nothing else that's ugh, like it. It's, it's so singular. singular, it's so yeah.
0: incredible. Mm. I could geek out about that forever, but to bring the focus back to Meg as a henchwoman. Oh,
1: right, that. <laughs>
0: Sorry, I knew I was writing this, and I'm like, all right, all right, come on, bring it back. Um,
1: That's why I kept mine short because I knew this was going <laughs> to yes. be the bulk of the episode.
0: <laughs> so to bring the focus back to Meg as a henchwoman, it's so unique for a hench person to have a song in general. Never mind one that is not focused on the villain they serve. Meg is a fully developed person outside of her service to Hades. This song is also very layered. Meg won't say she's in love not only because love has burned her in the past and she doesn't want to give in to the emotion, but because she has a job to do for the villain that cannot involve her falling in love with her target. Can't happen. On a side note, TikTok has been losing it recently because if you look closely, the statues Meg walks by during the song when she sings I Thought My Heart Had Learned Its Lesson are all scenes of assault as pointed out by user L Dramatic A Romantic. I love the little bits of darkness that Meg is fleshed out by even when she's singing about love. It's mm, so juicy. Meg's theme music is also jazzy, femme fatale, but doesn't jar you out of the setting of the film. She's provided a lot of backup by the music here, and it really, really elevates her. Meg is also just fantastically designed. Her figure and her hair are based on Greek pottery people. Ken Duncan was Meg's supervising animator and originally looked to draw her more realistically. But it wasn't working. And then Duncan hoped that the more stylized look he landed on would make Meg come across as less bitingly angry and more, you know, playfully sassy and sarcastic. hmm Meg is really hard to replicate in face characters or when you want to be her for Halloween because of her stylized hair, her angular body. But you know what? As much as, like, you know, I'd love to be her Meg hips. for Halloween. Her hair, Honestly, her her unattainable beauty standards. Even though it's hard to be her, I think this is part of what makes her more singular and wonderful and special. Her purple eyes and her purple dress give her a femme fatale flavor while also tying her to the cool tones of the underworld. And on a superficial level, her look is just iconic. Mm. I mean, who wouldn't? If you could fully execute the look, who wouldn't want to be? Who wouldn't want to look like that?
1: I remember my sister's Barbie doll of (gasps) Meg, and how she had the cords in her dress that, as you pulled them, it would like cinch the dress up. I vividly remember because it was like one of the one of like their favorite dolls. God,
0: (gasps) I don't know. I had a Hercules
1: Barbie so that I could play along because other kids on the street. So yeah,
0: (gasps) yes. We've talked about this, but I had a Meg nightgown. Like, I've always I've always wanted to be her. It's just all so good. Um, also, her movements are inspired by Susan Egan herself, as well as the performance model Michelle Beauchamp. And you can see some pictures of her um, in the Meg get-up. It's very interesting. So, moving on to Meg as a henchwoman. Meg has made some random guest appearances as part of the Disney Princess canon in, like, some record releases as part of some doll collections sure she's a princess in greek mythology but definitely not part of the disney princess collection and you know she's generally considered a part of the secondary heroine category alongside jane esmeralda alice and more but she subverts that category by directly and purposefully pitting the hero of this story against the villain and ultimately she is only a part of her story because she works for the villain and i wouldn't have it any other way If you need some text references because you're not convinced, here you go. Because I watched the film and I was like, okay, do I have a leg to stand on here? Like, is she a heroine? No, no. Listen. Hades calls her his leading lady and my sweet little deluded minion. So there it is. But he also refers to her in a group with pain and panic saying, you know, fortunately for the three of you, blah, blah, blah. She also interacts with pain and panic the way you talk to coworkers who annoy the crap out of you. The three of them are at the same place in the hierarchy compared to Hades. And Meg is not only an effective henchperson, but she subverts the femme fatale stereotype in a lot of really interesting ways. So here's why she's so effective. She smashes pain and panic. Now, granted, it's not difficult to do. But when you think of classic Disney minions, Pain and Panic often come to mind pretty quickly, and definitely more quickly than Meg. But Pain and Panic clearly are utterly useless. It is because they failed their original mission from Hades that this film and its story even need to happen. If they had fed baby Herc the full amount of potion that they were given, he would have been too weak to fight them off in their snake form, and he would have died. The end. Unlike Pain and Panic, Meg doesn't fear Hades to the point that it makes her ineffective. She knows she owes him, but we don't see this girl sweat. Fear not only makes you too nervous to complete your task effectively, but it blocks your critical thinking skills. Meg always has her wits about her. Additionally, Meg does not have magic or dark power or whatever it is that pain and panic have that causes them to be able to shapeshift. She only has the skills that any normal mortal possesses, and she still uses them to better effect than anything that pain and panic do. Another reason she's effective. This is a job for her. Meg is serving Hades because they have a deal. She sold her soul to him to save her then-boyfriend's life. She doesn't seem to particularly enjoy the job, of course. She is enslaved. But until Hercules comes along, she seems to handle tasks from Hades with a very businesslike detachment. She isn't obsessed with her villain, like LeFou or Smee to an extent. She doesn't fear him or rely on him for a hopeful payout later, like the hyenas. And she doesn't have any desire for the power he has. I kind of, like, I think of Iago when I think of that. Maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Her emotions aren't really involved, especially because she has been so hurt and betrayed by humanity in general, and men specifically, that in a way she's kind of in robot mode.
1: Yeah, like, fuck all men.
0: Yeah, she's just done with everybody. She just wants to finish all this off so she can go be alone forever.
1: Which, like, honestly, like, go for it.
0: Relatable. <laughs> That's what I want to get to, too. So
1: I get it. Take them all down, girl. Yeah.
0: <laughs> So pre-Hercules, she can get anything done for Hades because each job is one step closer to their deal being evened out. And like I said, her being able to go off and be alone forever. She says that she has no friends and her lack of personal connections makes her even more invincible. I mean, that's eventually what, you know, her weakness becomes Hercules. But up until then, she's bulletproof. Mm -hmm. There's nobody that anybody could use against her because she has no one. And she is not weakened at all. By being a minion not of her own free will. That, the fact that she's there because she has to be does not affect things for her. She is super effective. Also, she's an amazing actress. Meg takes on each role that Hades assigns her seamlessly. From the femme fatale, like, nearly caught by a centaur, to a very distraught citizen of Thebes just looking to save two innocent young boys. She even fools us as an audience for a moment. When Hades reveals to Hercules, spoiler, that Meg was working for him the whole time and doesn't really love him, Meg doesn't do a terribly good job at convincing Hercules that it wasn't all like that. It makes you pause for a second and really question what's going on with her and which direction she's going to go in in that moment. When you watch it, you're kind of like, huh. She's not really like begging him and saying, please, like, don't listen to a word he's saying. So you're like, is she going to stick by Hades so that she can just continue to pay off her debt and be free? It always seems possible. It doesn't feel like we, we know what she's going to do. And honestly, Meg only trips up because she does her job so well. Meg agrees to romance Hercules in order to find his weakness. It's only because she takes on this role so effectively that she's actually able to open herself up to true feelings of love. It's like anything we talk about in acting school. Like really brilliant acting performances, her belief in the given circumstances opens her up to genuine emotion. Mm -hmm. So Meg only gets tripped up in her evil doing because she does it so well. Also, in the category of comedy, I don't always need my hench people to be funny. It's interesting. Everything you talked about with Lawrence was so interesting to me because, yeah, like they're trying to make him funny. He's not very funny. Meg has just the best singers, we all know this. Hench people can often bring the laughs and the gags, but Meg brings them in a sophisticated way with really intelligent one-liners that often go over the head of the people that she's tossing them at. Her wit also matches Hades. When so many minions are less intelligent or just like eons above the villains that they serve, she can spar with Hades and so therefore has the possibility of improving upon his plans and being a true teammate should she choose to be one. Also, every eyebrow raised, deadpan look of hers is absolutely iconic. I mean, I'm a damsel, I'm in distress, I can handle this. Have a nice day. In a family film, yes, t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, it's t- it's just, it's everything. And so did they give you a name along with all those rippling pectorals? And (laughs) the best part is, is she's entertaining herself half the time. And it's so much fun to watch her do that and be in on it. It's so much fun. Yeah, like it's
1: not for us. It's for her. Yeah. And and I think that's kind of what the genius of it is. It's like, that's why it's funny because she's not trying for us. Like the writing for Meg isn't. For the audience, it's as much for her as it is anything else.
0: Yeah. And it has to be that way because she has no one. So if she's not gonna entertain herself, nobody is. It's actually really sad. And it
1: even comes down to her song. Her song is directed toward herself. Herself. Like every it's yeah. it's all centered. <laughs> yeah. Oh god, I love her.
0: Also, her position as henchwoman has an incredible motivation and backstory. Her story is so heartbreaking. She sold her soul for a man and he left her. We can feel for her and understand why she's made the choices that she has, but at the same time, we don't pity her because it seems like she does Hades bidding without batting an eyelash most of the time, so she isn't 100% like pure and helpless. She is provided very serious villain-level motivation that elevates her above a typical minion. She thinks that everyone is just petty and dishonest, especially men, after being betrayed in the worst possible way. That kind of pain that she has gone through could create a supervillain, and it has before in other origin stories. And this makes her so much more interesting as a henchwoman type, and also increases the threat of the main villain when his, you know, quote-unquote, assistant has a very strong reason to be willing to do bad things as well. But, as you just said, Connor, we can also understand her. She wants to be alone so that no one can hurt her. We can't laugh her off. Or just put her, you know, in the, in the evil category because we've all felt that way at some point or another. So we're tied to her. And then finally, so here's the tricky part. She's a henchwoman, but then ultimately isn't anymore. She turns her back on the villain. But she subverts the henchwoman femme fatale archetype by abandoning her role for love. Ultimately, Meg takes down the villain she serves and this takedown doesn't involve the stereotypical, like, haha, I've been good all along, or I'm going to take you down now because I want your power. Meg is taken by surprise by her own betrayal. And then the race for her life at the end of the film becomes so much more high stakes than Hercules fighting the Titans, which is the battle we've been building towards the entire film. It gets handled in a really quick sequence. While we're watching the face prepare to cut the thread of Meg's life, that's what really gets our hearts pounding. I can't imagine feeling even remotely this way about any other villain sidekick. Meg possesses all of the fun qualities of the femme fatale archetype. She knows how to weaponize her sexuality so that men can't use it against her. She has a strong intellect, and she's there to trap the male lead. But Meg's journey is a truly feminist one, as she doesn't see the trope through to the ultimate destruction of the male. The femme fatale archetype is misogynist because it reinforces the idea that intelligent women in control of their sexuality are dangerous. But Meg destroys the man who sought to exploit her power. Hades admits it himself. He blames everything going wrong on Meg, quote-unquote, going all noble. And most beautifully, She does this all not to stick it to Hades, but because she has found true love and allowed someone to see her be vulnerable. Then, after all of that, laying down her literal life for love again, even though it destroyed her before, she's willing to let Hercules go and fulfill his destiny of being a god, even though she cannot join him. And it's beautiful, he chooses to go with her, but she was willing to give it all up ultimately, which is not the woman that we met at the beginning of this story and all of this story belongs to the person who is just there at the start to serve the villain what a story
1: yeah what a story uh oh, you a did story. such a good job with that i mean Love her. one of the things that you were, when you were talking about how she like turns her back on the villain even in that It's not like she's turning her back on the villain in order to throw it in favor of the hero. Mm -hmm. All she does when she, you know, sacrifices herself in that moment is even the playing field. So even then, it's like you can make the argument that she's not actively helping Hercules, but Mm -hmm. rather letting things play out the way that they should have from the get-go. Which is neither helping nor hurting anyone, really. Which is
0: so interesting. Hench people get thrown into, like, categories of, like, I want everything to be bad or I hate my position here. I, I want to destroy the villain now. And she lives, so many parts of Meg live in this gray area that just, like, wasn't before her. That kind of thing was not happening before. She is. <sighs> She's so special. I love her.
1: Yeah, because the, the fate prophecy is that if Hercules should fight, you will lose. Mm -hmm. And she's not necessarily ensuring that Hercules will fight by doing what she does. She just now gives that choice back to him that he can choose to fight or not, which I think is interesting.
0: (sighs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Though she does sort of give him something a little bit worth fighting for. But (laughs)
0: whatever. (laughs) My God. A girl worth fighting for, if you
1: will. I I mean, I really don't have anything else to add to your rave. I think Meg is a fantastic character to rave about, especially as a hench person, because that's not where people, you know, usually think to put her, and that's exactly where she lives. Like that's that's who she is. That's why
0: she's so interesting. Where
1: she's supposed to be. Yeah, that's
0: we can't take that away from her because that is it's intrinsic. That's who she is. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that we she's so well done that we forget. And we just make her her own yeah. heroine, which I think is cool.
1: Love interest comes second to the purpose that she's serving at the beginning of the
0: film. Yeah. Mm. yeah.
1: Well, alrighty, folks. That's going to do it for us for this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around. Please remember to hit follow or subscribe wherever you are listening to the podcast. That way, all of our episodes download right to your device and you won't miss anything, including our bonus content which is coming up. Mm. But also, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave a five-star rating and a review. That way you can help some other people find the podcast. Those reviews go a long way, not just in terms of convincing other people to hit the play button, but also for us to make sure that we are doing the things that you like to hear, that you're getting from the podcast what you would be hoping to. So thank you very much for taking just a minute or less to do that little thing right here as we're wrapping up.
0: Please also follow us on social media. We are at Poor Unfortunate Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And we are at Unfortunate Pod on Twitter. So speaking of bonus content, if you want some hints, we tend to drop some on social media, especially on Instagram. So stay tuned over there. We also just love – we post some questions on Instagram all the time. Uh, after our last episode be our guests – We had some people guess some of the answers. We also got some feedback, and some people thought that it was really difficult. Some people were like, okay. Caroline's
1: questions were way too unfairly (laughs) difficult. Yep. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Right. I can mm -hmm. take it.
0: So really, pop over to social media and let me know. I'm a big girl. I tie my own sandals and everything.
1: Oh, Um, my God. Get out. (laughs)
0: Also, please, if you are on Facebook, we would love it if you would come join our private Facebook group, The Poor Unfortunate Fam. We've gotten to know so many listeners on a much more personal and wonderful level by them joining the group. And we have really fantastic conversations there. We it Just every time I pop on there, I get a little bit more excited about some Disney update that somebody has posted. And it just helps to, you know, put some, some faces to names sometimes of people who are listening so that we can learn a bit more about you and what you want to hear on the podcast. So we would love if you would join us there.
1: And if you don't have social media and want to get in contact with us, you can always email us. We are poorunfortunatepodcast at gmail.com or you can go to our website, poorunfortunatepodcast.com and fill out the little contact us form there if you have any questions or thoughts for episodes, anything like that. And then the last thing I will say is that it does take us a little bit of money to keep the podcast up and running and coming to you all. We do have a PayPal account so that we can accept donations and it is linked in the episode description as well as on our social media accounts uh, through the website link. Truly, anything that you have to spare means the world to us. It all goes right back into the podcast. You can make a donation of $5, $10, $20, more than that. You can make it a one-time donation or monthly. Again, all goes right back into the podcast, making sure that we are keeping the podcast free and for the most part, ad-free. Uh, and we are currently looking for 10 people to donate $5 before the end of the year. If you have donated it already to us, thank you so much. It thank you. It truly means the world to us. It does. Um, and if you are someone who has been enjoying the podcast for the past year and a half or so, please consider maybe giving a little bit of money as a tip for the work that we've been putting in to make sure that we can continue doing it for you for another year and a half plus to come. <laughs> So thank you very much for taking that time to do that. And that's it. That's that's the episode. That's it. Well, Caroline, until next time. Beluga. Sabruga. beluga sabruga.